Well, I'll start talking and let our guys dial in my voice a little bit. They need all the help they can get. How about we pray and um, ask God just to help us as we open up his word together, as we consider what he's saying to us, as we think through our lives in relation to his purpose and his will. So let's pray and then we're going to open up God's word. Lord, thank you for our opportunity to be here again today um, to celebrate with one another the good news of the gospel, what you have done in our life. And as we um, consider what you have done for us, we can't help but start to have a, a passion and a burden for those that don't know that yet, those that we know, those that are in our community that we haven't met. But Lord, we long for others to recognise Jesus as king of their life as we have done. Um, Lord, we acknowledge now that as we reflect on your word, uh, our hearts and our minds are so easily distracted by so many things. And Lord, our desire is to be captivated by what you have to say. And so Lord, speak to us and give us a heart to hear it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to read to you, contrary to popular belief and what I may convey on my social media, I actually love Christmas. I really do. I just don't love what most people call Christmas. Um, but I love this time of year. I love the anticipation. I'm, I'm really into anticipation. I always really enjoyed it. I was one of those kids that when they... Um, we had the tradition in our family at Christmas Day. Um, someone would be the gift giver from under the tree and they would hand them out. You know, it, it wasn't like a, a frenzy free-for-all of everyone ripping into presents or anything. It was like a really deliberate hand the gifts out to people and the kids and the parents and all the rest of it. And um, when you got your present, you open it up in front of everyone. Do you do that? You know, and maybe the person that, Gave it to you, you say, thank you so much. I really love these socks um, or whatever it is that you received. Uh, I was this weird kid that would get my gifts and stash them. I never opened them. Well, I'd say never. I just didn't open them then. I liked stashing them. And then at the end, when everyone had got their gifts, I would find a little spot and I would sit there and open them up one by one. I liked the anticipation of trying to, wait to see what was in the gift. And this time of the year when we're, we're starting to talk about Christmas, but it's not really Christmas yet. Um, my wife put on a Christmas carol this morning on our home stereo, whatever, the speakers at home or something. And um, my younger son looked up at her and went, Mum, it's not Christmas. <laughs> I was really proud. I was like, <laughs> I have to say, I was just, it was a heartwarming moment. Until my wife gave me one of those looks that don't need a lot of explanation. <laughs> this is all your fault, right? And look, it's true, it's not Christmas yet. It's not Christmas yet. But we are in a moment where the sort of the world takes a breath and kind of holds it 
knowing that whatever year it is that's gone past, and it's been a, it's been a big year, right, in more ways than one. But there's this kind of collective intake of breath at this time of the year where people stop and there's a sort of anticipation of Christmas, of whatever people think Christmas is, but there's a kind of waiting and that is good and as it should be and it's what the church historically has called Advent, a season of waiting, of anticipation for something that's about to happen. So we're going to do this little series um, about the nativity, something about um, what we're waiting for and reflecting on it. And to do, uh, as way of introduction, I want to read to you maybe my favourite carol. Okay, you, you might know this. I'm going to read it to you. O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here and drive away the shades of night and pierce the clouds and bring us light. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high. And close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times once gave the law in cloud and mystery, majesty and awe. Rejoice, Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. That's how the carol goes. And there will be a lot of people who might sing this in the weeks ahead and often without any thought for the profound truth that it reminds us of. And that does not in any way diminish its beauty. It's a carol, a song, that reflects the prophecy that's found in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Single verse, Isaiah's prophecy to the people of Israel come from the Lord and it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. God with us. I mean, the carol, O Come Emmanuel, that we sing now, if you've listened 
or sung it well and, and thought about what it's saying, you will notice that it's written from a very different perspective. It's, it's written from the perspective of someone who is waiting for Emmanuel. It's written from the perspective of those who wait in expectation for a coming day, a day that's not yet arrived. And when we sing it today, of course, we sing it from the perspective of those who look back in time. And we know the stories about that stable, about that manger, about the shepherds. We know those stories and we're reflecting and looking back. But when Isaiah wrote this prophecy in Isaiah 7, when this carol is reflecting on what it must have been like for Israel to wait for this coming, who knows what, but Emmanuel, can you imagine? There they are in all, all their distress as a nation, in captivity, in, in bondage, and waiting. What it, what it must have felt like to be anticipating God with us. So we're going to spend a, a few weeks exploring why the nativity really matters. Why does it matter that Jesus was born as a man, as a human? Why does that matter? I mean, if it was just about Emmanuel, God with us, then God had options, right? Why didn't? Why didn't God just show up one day? Not in, um, not in the form of a baby. That seems pretty weak, uh, very dependent. And certainly, why didn't he just show up somewhere a little bit more important than the fields outside Bethlehem, which was sort of a, a nowhere town? Why didn't, why didn't God just show up in all of his splendor of heaven? Why didn't Jesus appear on earth as he appears in the throne room of the heavens with angels bowing down before him? Why didn't God just show up and basically just say, here I am? And everyone look at him and not mistake the fact that this is God. Why does it matter that the nativity happened? Why the need for the prophecy from Isaiah 7? And why did Matthew, when he recorded his gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, say this? as he described that nativity, as he described Jesus' arrival very humbly into our world, and Matthew records this, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. Matthew saw it. But why is it important? So we're going to start today with our very first reason, which answers the question, why does the birth of Jesus matter? And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to spend about three weeks on this. We're just going to focus on three reasons. There are dozens more. But I just want to highlight three that I think are important for us this year to reflect on. And the first reason for today is there on the screen. It matters because it means that Jesus is 
like us. Is like us. Now we're going to wade here into some pretty dangerous and deep waters because there have been countless distorted theologies over the history of the church and even things, heresies, where people got the nature of Jesus' humanity very wrong and came to some really poor conclusions about Jesus as a man because um, they had distorted understandings of who he is. And so we need to be careful here. When we talk about his divine nature and his humanity, um, that, that's, that's shaky ground for anyone to get up and say, this is who Jesus really is. So what I want to try and do carefully, because it's so easy to drift into some sort of error here, is I want you to pray for me because I'm fairly dull and I can easily misspeak and I don't want to miscon- misconstrue. I don't want to misrepresent the, the awesome reality of God who became man. You understand? That's that's a profound thing. God become, and it's a mystery. Uh, and I want to leave room for that mystery here. What I simply want to do is take you to two main scriptures this morning. One's going to be in the Gospel of John. The other one's going to be in Hebrew. So if you're a person that needs to sort of think ahead and find where they are, you can find those, the Gospel of John and the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And they're the two passages that I want to reflect on a little bit this morning. But I particularly just want to go to those scriptures and just read them very simply and say, what do they say about Jesus? And in particular, about Jesus being like us. There are lots of other verses that we could go to, dozens of other passages. But this morning, I just want to go to these two particular passages. And I want to not not say that these are more important than other passages. I just want to say, here they are. And and here's the tension that we experience when we think about Jesus, Son of God, Eternal One, and yet a little baby wrapped up dependent on his mother. That's a mystery. So here's the first one from John chapter 1. And um, if I was going to try and put a point around this to, to help focus our attention on, I would say that I think the, the nativity matters. The fact that Jesus came and we have that whole scene in, the, in, in the, the manger with the shepherds and the... That matters because the, the nativity literally puts flesh around an abstract concept of God's relationship with his creation. I want to explain what I mean by that. The nativity puts flesh on a very abstract idea or concept about how God relates to people. Now, to help me understand or help us all grasp and grapple with that, let's read first from what God says before I say anything. John chapter 1, starting from verse 1. Read along with me. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And just so we don't misunderstand what that's saying about the Word, the Word was God. All right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. 
And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, for the sake of time, I want to skip over a few verses that deal with John the Baptist's relationship and role with the Word who was God. But I just want to highlight one verse, though, as a way of transitioning. So go down and have a look at verse 9. John 1, verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That should remind us a little bit, I think, of the prophecy that Isaiah made in Isaiah 7, that someone was coming. They didn't know who. They were in their situation and their circumstances where it was dark and desperate and there's the prophecy that Isaiah gives that one day someone is coming, Emmanuel, God with us. And so verse 9 of John 1 says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. All right, skip down. Let's have a look at verse 14 of the same chapter. John chapter 1, reading from verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we observed, we saw His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified concerning Him and exclaiming, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because He existed before me. Grace is really significant here. No one has ever seen God, John says. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. So I want you to just make a couple of observations about that little passage. The first is this. The the first part that I read out before we said, let's skip down a little bit, about the word. It's really important that the nativity happened the way that it did because John could see it as he described it there. The word became flesh. But if we just read the first part, those first few verses of John's Gospel about the Word being from the beginning and the Word being with God and the Word was God, it's still just a description of what? A Word. The Logos, the Greek says. The Word. And words can be abstract. How do we relate to this thing that's been there from the beginning? How do we know Him? How do we understand what God's like? All we have is this concept of a a logos, a word that existed, and we couldn't put anything else to it. But then John says, we were waiting for this word to come. But when the word showed up, the word became what? Flesh, an idea a word, a concept, that that's all we had to grasp. 
But then at the nativity, that word changed. That word became not just an idea, not just a concept to us, but the word became flesh. Now, Jesus has always existed eternally. But we didn't know him. We hadn't seen him. We couldn't experience him. And yet, as Jesus enters our world to us, just a concept, just an idea, just something that is so abstract to us, unless he showed us what it looks like, he became like us. The word became flesh. It moved from a concept of abstract ideas that we could somehow relate to God somehow through this word, an abstract idea became a reality. The second thing I want you to notice about that passage is that Jesus is how we behold, or that word means see. And more than just see that I'm looking at something, but to really behold something is to see it for what it is. Jesus is how we behold the glory of God. He's how we see and how we know grace and truth. Passage John says he's full of grace and truth. He's not 50% grace and 50% truth. He is full of grace and truth. Most of us sit on that, that spectrum on a sliding scale. Sometimes we say, well, it's a time for grace. Or I can't take it anymore. I've got to speak truth. And we, we slide and we step between grace and truth. Sometimes our grace is devoid of truth. We'll just overlook it, right? We'll overlook it. That's what we think grace is. And sometimes our truth is completely devoid of grace. I'm going to speak truth now. It's going to be hard. Jesus didn't sidestep either of those things. If we want to know what grace and truth looks like in perfect unison and perfect harmony, we look to Jesus. Jesus is how we see the glory of God. You know what happened in the Old Testament when someone saw the glory of God? Often they died. Or they at least spent an immense amount of time fearing for their life because they said, woe is me, I've seen the Lord. Surely I will die. Because they understood that for us to come into contact with the glory of God was dangerous simply because we're not glorious. We're not glorious enough. We have a tarnished image of our creator that we carry with us. It's been distorted by sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, Paul tells us. And so to come into contact with the glory of God is dangerous. And then Jesus came. 
and he looked like us. He was born like us and he lived like us and we could see him. And John says we could see the glory of God. It also tells us in this passage that Jesus is how we see the unseeable. Now that's a mystery. John 1 and 18, no one has ever seen God. No one. Now there are times in the Old Testament, there are stories where people, you know, like Moses, for example, who said, God, I want to see you. And God said, no, you don't. <laughs> you think you do, but you really don't. And the times where people got closest to God was when God said, all right, um, I'm not going to show up so that you can see me for who I really am. I'm not going to give you a, an image. I'm going to give you a taste of what it's like. On one occasion, he hid somebody in a, in a rock, in a little cave on the edge of a cliff, and it says he put his hand over him. He says, I'm going to just pass by you. I will allow you to see the back of me as I'm walking away. And even then, it was almost too much. All the images that we get of God in that occasion were, you know, a massive uh, whirlwind, like a hurricane. Surely that's God, right? God said, no, no, that's not me. And then they saw a fiery pillar, this out of control, burning rage of fire and said, oh, that must be God. No, no, that's not me either. And then it says, he revealed himself in what? A quiet whisper. But, but all of those were just images. They were, again, abstract ideas about how we relate to God and who God is like. How would we really know? John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side he has revealed him. Jesus is how we see the unseeable. Jesus is how we see God. He became like us and even like us as we look at him, we can see an image of God. We see God himself. Do you remember the time? It's in John's Gospel as well, John chapter 14. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples. The disciples, as usual, are highly confused. And don't laugh too much because we think stupid disciples. I wouldn't have been confused if I had been there, right? You would have been. I would have been. We would have been just as confused as they did. But they were confused about what Jesus had been telling them. And uh, Philip asked um, an exasperated question of Jesus. He just got to the point where he just sort of felt like Jesus was speaking in riddles to him all the time. He just went, oh, oh, for goodness sake. Jesus, please, can you just show us the Father? Then we'll be happy, all right? It'll just be really clear to us if you can just show us God. I love Jesus' response, full of grace and truth. <laughs> John 14, verse 9. 
Have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The conversation continues, but... But Jesus was trying to help his disciples to understand. He's trying to help us understand. If you want to know what God is like this morning, if you've been wrestling with that question, how do I know? God, how do I know what you're like? God, how do I know how you'll you'll act? God, how do I know that this is you in my life, that this is something that you're wanting me to do, or whatever it is that you're wrestling with. If that's your question this morning and you've been asking, how do I know, then Jesus is imploring with you this morning, look at me. Jesus is saying, look to me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is how we see the unseeable. God became not not only with us, remember Emmanuel, God with us. God became not only with us, but in doing so, he became like us. He clothed himself in humanity. He put on flesh. And in doing so, he went from an abstract idea to us. How do we relate to God? How do we know what God is like? How do we understand how, to, how we should respond to him? He went from an abstract to a reality. And he's showing us even today, up close and personal, what it is like to live in the glory of God. That's the reason, the first reason I want you to see this morning, that the nativity matters. It matters that Jesus came as a baby in a manger. It matters that he grew up with his mum and his dad in Nazareth. It matters that he walked this world and he walked this life just like we are. That matters because, because now we can see what God is like. We know. Here's the second thing I want you to, to, to hear this morning though. The nativity which is where God humbly enters our space, means that we can now boldly enter his space. Read with me from Hebrews chapter 4, a passage that we read through when we were doing our series in Hebrews earlier this year. Hebrews chapter 4, just a couple of verses, starting from verse 14. Hebrews 4, verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Verse 16, therefore, 
If you see a therefore, ask why it's therefore. Okay? Verse 16 is not a disconnected idea from the rest of that passage. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, we have this Jesus, our great high priest is the image that he's talking about, but one who's passed through the heavens and come into our space and he sympathizes with us. Jesus, like us, understands what it is to walk in this world. He understands what it's like to navigate relationships. He understands what it's like to have a friend who will betray you. He understands what it's like to be rejected. He understands what it's like to have a mother's love. He understands what it's like to lose a father. He understands what it's like to have siblings who don't want anything to do with you. He understands what it's like to be hungry. He understands what it's like to be misunderstood and overlooked. And whatever it is that you're thinking through right now, he understands that. He can sympathise with you. And yet we have this wonderful picture of a sympathising great high priest who is just like us in every respect, except that he never sinned. He never allowed it to get to the point that he would walk away from his father's purpose and will. And all of that, verse 16 says, when it says, therefore, means that because all of that is true, we can now approach the throne of grace with boldness. Because we have a God who became like us, who understands us, who has walked with us that we have seen and we've beheld his glory. Remember what John said? That he was full of grace and truth. And why does that matter? Why does the nativity matter? It matters because now we can boldly approach the throne of grace ourselves not because of who we are, not because we earned our way in or pushed our way in, not because we proved ourselves enough, but because we have Jesus who became like us. That's, That's the reason the writer says we can now approach the throne of grace with boldness. And we can approach it so that we might receive mercy. Don't you want that? I do. Mercy is where we we don't receive from God what we deserve. That's mercy. I walk into God's presence and I bring with me all the best that I've got, but I also bring every failure of mine, every, every weight of shame that I still carry. I bring all of that and on my own merit, by my own credentials, I should receive God's wrath. I should receive God's judgment. I have fallen short of the glory in every possible way. But now because of Jesus, the glory in every possible way. Thanks, Siri. 
I don't need your reminding of that. I remind myself of that most days pretty easily. You probably do as well, how often you fail. We think, how can God ever look at me? How can God ever, how could God ever accept me? I won't approach him. I won't draw near to him because I fear his rejection. But we have Jesus, the one who came like us, and we hold on to him, the writer says here, and we now boldly approach the throne of grace. Now we can walk into God's presence so that we may receive mercy, where God withholds all that we rightfully deserve and find what? Grace, which is actually receiving something from God that we don't deserve. That's what grace is, right? Where God pours out his love and affection, all the love and affection that he has for Jesus, and he transfers it to you. And he says, because you are in Jesus, you also gain all my riches. And we can boldly approach him without fear now of judgment and condemnation. And we can boldly approach him and find grace. And it's all to do with a Jesus who actually entered our world and became like us. Look at what it cost God. Look at what it cost God. And rightfully so, in a moment, we're going to take communion, break the bread, and we're going to take the cup. Those emblems remind us about the cost that it, that it took, that had to be paid so that we might experience mercy and grace and rightfully so, we think about the cross, we think about the crucifixion, we think about the, the, the price that was paid when Jesus hung on the tree and gave his life for us. But there's another price that was paid, another cost that God had to bear. When the writer approaches this subject in Hebrews, he doesn't directly, not at least here, point us to the cross. He points us to the cost of God emptying himself of all his rightful honour and position afforded to him in the courts of heaven and humbled himself. The creator became the created. And that's a cost. The creator wrapped himself in the flesh of his own creation. Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Jesus knows what it's like to live this life in all of its frailties. He, he knows what it's like to face each and every day shouldering the burden of Countless temptations that we experience in the flesh. Jesus knows what it's like to wage war against Satan, a similar one to the one that we face each and every day. Jesus knows. He knows. And, and he humbly entered our world. 
in order that we can boldly enter into his. And none of that would have been possible if he didn't first enter the world through a birth canal. That he lay in the the muck of Mary's afterbirth. And feel the rough hands of a carpenter maybe hold him really with trembling hands like any of you who have been a first-time father may have experienced. And to hear the attempted melodies of people who are better accredited to just look after sheep. The nativity matters because it matters that Jesus become like us. Remember the verse, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And what should we do with that news? The writer says, rejoice, right? Exclamation mark. Rejoice. That's that's the way it should be said. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come. And the good news that we carry this morning and that we celebrate this morning is rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel has come. And he came to be just like us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you entered our world so that we might boldly approach yours. Lord, even now as we speak to you and call you Father, that is an unheard of privilege that we would never have had unless unless Emmanuel came. So as we take this bread and take this cup now, we do so remembering not only the one who died, but the one who came and lived like us, whose body was ultimately broken and the blood ultimately shed for us. We thank you for Jesus, the word who became flesh. And we have seen him, but in him we have seen you. We have seen God. We have beheld your glory and we've seen it in the face of Jesus. So we thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen.